Titus chapter number 2. Which, by the way, while I'm just thinking about it, I don't know who's scheduled for that age class next week, but we will not be doing it during the cantata. We're going to go ahead and have nursery, but not that age class. So Uh, let's go ahead and stand, please. Verses 9 and 10 are our passage this evening. Titus chapter 2 and verse number 9. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And we're going to cut off there, although obviously Paul does not. And let's pray. Father, thank you that we live in a country and in an economic system in which we are free to labor that we are free to make decisions about what kind of work we do and who we work for. Thank you that we live in an environment and a system in which we can benefit tremendously from our labor, reaping many of the financial rewards from it. And Father, thank you that we have really no liberty when it comes to the type of employee that we are, that that is entirely governed by you and help us to live obediently to that mandate, please, in Jesus' name, amen. You may, of course, be seated. Well, the pastoral epistles are pastoral in that They really are instructive to the pastor about what to say to the congregation, what kind of man he is to be in the presence of the congregation, and what kind of things he is to say to the congregation. It is not really a manual for pastoral ministry. We have two books that describe for us what the church is, Ephesians and Colossians. We have three books that are directed towards pastors, or what we call the pastorals, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. And again, these are books that are on what should be taught in the church and why it should be taught and what should be the position of the church with reference to its teaching and its disobedience. So Paul has here, right, after dealing as he did in 1 Timothy, Paul has begun by talking about the fact that there is false doctrine, bad ideas in the assembly, wrong teachings, some of them coming right out of the Bible. And then again, in similar fashion to 1 Timothy, he turns his attention to what we would call the demographics of the assembly. And in Titus, he begins by talking to people with reference to their age, elder and younger, with reference to their gender, men and women, 
And now he talks to them in verses 9 and 10 with reference to their vocation. And God has something to say there. The good works of a Christian are put on display in the workplace. This is not by having Christian symbolism displayed. I'm not preaching against that, but having a cross hung on your cubicle or posted on your cubicle or a religious saying or a Bible verse is good, but it is not what God is getting at. It's not what he has in mind in a passage like this. We're going to deal, and I just want to make this disclaimer, we're going to deal only with the text in front of us in Titus this evening. And, And why I'm saying that is because you'll notice as we read verse 9 and 10 that we have exhortation to servants and no instruction at all to masters. Timothy includes instruction to those who would be masters. And at some level, that would describe some people within our assembly people in a supervisory type role. But Titus doesn't have that, and so we're just not going to tackle that this evening because we're dealing with the content of the book of Titus. If you're trying to build a complete doctrine of that, then of course you'd want to get all the relevant sources. But our task is to look at Titus. And what I want to do with these four verses is kind of unpack them along with using four words. Three of those words come right out of the text, and then I'm going to add one at the very end, if I can, to description. So I want to begin with this word, and that is the word slavery. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters. You'll notice in your King James Bible that the word exhort is in italics. It is not in the Greek text. It is being supplied. It is being supplied as a verb, but... Uh, In the Greek text, the verb is obedient. And our translators have supplied it most likely to continue on with the train of thought that we have in chapter 2 and verse number 1, speak the things which become sound doctrine. Chapter 2, verse number 6, young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. And now we have this, again, repetition of idea, tying them all together exhort servants to be obedient, but obedient is the verb, and Paul, in his mind, and in his writing, and in his language, expects that we would recognize that he is continuing on, again, aged men, aged women, women, young men, he talks to the genders, he talks to to the age groups, and now he talks to the workplace. Of course, in America, the word slavery and the very concept of slavery conjures up all kinds of sinister racial inequalities. But the reality is that slavery is very old. It was an accepted part of Paul's world. And it is even at some level regulated in the scriptures. So rather than the Bible being a book that insists upon the overthrow of slavery, the Bible is a book that recognizes the realities of slavery and speaks to those who are slaves. 
But we do want to recognize that there are some differences and there are some limitations. For instance, what we would call today and what at one time was simply known as the slave trade is prohibited in the Bible. 1 Timothy 1.10, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers. Again, this is what we would call human trafficking. And that is condemned. In Paul's world, particularly in the Jewish world and the way the Old Testament viewed it, you could sell yourself into slavery. You could make a voluntary choice to put yourself on the market and sell yourselves into bondage. And in fact, folks, without going back and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this or in the Old Testament. The law of eye for eye and tooth for tooth is set within that world. It is set to regulate and limit the punishment that can be inflicted upon those who have voluntarily, for whatever reason, socioeconomic, they just choose the lifestyle. It is designed to regulate and to protect those who are in it. The primary source of slaves in Paul's world were military captives or war conquests. You went in and captured a city, then that city, if you were a Roman general, captured that city, then oftentimes the population of that city was under your control. And in fact, history tells us that at one time, after one particular battle, Julius Caesar sold 53,000 people into slavery in one transaction. I mean, that's like, that's like, folks, selling the entire city of Grand Island into slavery with the signature on a piece of paper. You are now all slaves. Yesterday you were free. Today I conquered your city. And now you all belong to whoever will pay the most money for you. This is the world that was So the racial animosity that so characterizes the word slavery in our world was not necessarily a a word that characterized slavery in Paul's world. We would be foolish to think it didn't exist, but it wasn't the dominant factor in slavery. And of course, as you can imagine, slavery varied from place to place. If you were a slave in Sparta, your life was going to be distinctly more difficult than if you were a slave in Athens, although they are not terribly far apart geographically. And we have in our Bibles, folks, an entire letter that is written to a slave owner about the conversion of his slave to Christ. And that is the little book of Philemon. Now, We no longer practice slavery. We obviously know that. But I think we also understand that we don't just throw out verses like 9 and 10. We carry them over into whatever is the most modern corollary. And that, of course, is going to be people in their employment. People who are... and, And interestingly enough, folks, there's not really... If you look at all of the New Testament literature, and I'm just kind of talking off the top of my head... There's not a lot of literature written to people that, that would fit within our world. When Paul talks about the workplace, it's almost always in the framework of a master and a servant. 
It is rarely in the context, although Paul himself was one, what kind of an independent contractor, a man who made tents. So the regulation is to those who find themselves in either a very powerful situation as a slave owner or in a very weak situation as the slave himself or herself. So we're going to extend and apply what is clearly said to slaves into the marketplace of free market America. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity. That brings me to my second word. First word, slavery, servants. Second word, responsibility. What are the responsibilities of those who are enslaved? And again, folks, in our culture, if you were to find yourself enslaved, your primary obligation would be to obtain liberty. We'll come back to that. But our primary, the thing we would say is, your primary responsibility is to get yourself free. That is not the way God views this. And so, <clears throat> Paul deals with slaves along two broad dimensions. One is their attitude and the other is their activity. If you should find yourself enslaved, what kind of slave should you be? Well, you should be an obedient slave. Verse number 9. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters. And the grammar there is very clear. It is what we would call a middle voice imperative. Those who are servants are responsible for submitting themselves to their masters. The Bible could read, now you who are masters, beat your slaves into submission. And we all, right, we all know the old joke, the beatings will continue until morale improves. So, but the text of Scripture is that those who are slaves are expected to place themselves voluntarily at their owner's disposal. Not because of culture, not because of sociology, but because of Scripture. Exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters. They are to be well-pleasing. These are their attitudes. I voluntarily place myself as a service to my real master, Jesus Christ, at the disposal of my human owner. And I do this voluntarily, and I do this in such a way as to be acceptable to my owner. Well-pleasing, verse number 9. To please them well in all things. To be pleasing to them in all things. And I think, folks, that we can go back, we could go back through the other texts of Scripture and realize that Paul is not here commanding them to be immoral in their conduct or idolatrous. My master told me that I had to worship Zeus, and since he's my master, I had to worship Zeus. No. Or I Right? The good old tried and true, I was only following orders. My, my master told me 
that, that I had to kill these people, and so my master ordered me to commit murder, and God told me to be a good slave, and so I had to do it. I was just following orders. No. No, folks. We don't, we don't lose our minds over a text of Scripture like this. But those instances are going to be rare, right? In, in I think the man's name is Goldsworthy, who wrote a biography of Caesar Augustus, he made reference to an owner who would periodically, just for the sheer delight of it and to keep all of his slaves in line, take one of his slaves and feed him to carnivorous fish. Just You know what? Today's the day that you get fed to the fishes. But those kinds of instances are rare, and the slave who is commanding you to violate Scripture, the owner who's commanding you to violate Scripture, that's a whole other set of guidelines. In general, the attitude of those who are enslaved is that they are to voluntarily submit themselves to their masters and they are to do this in such a way as to be pleasing to their masters. That their masters are happy to have them as slaves. And, and, and this word well-pleasing is the word acceptable in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Present your bodies a living sacrifice acceptable to God. And then he turns his attention to the actions. What do you have in mind? What kind of action should flow from my attitude of voluntary submission that seeks to be pleasing to my master, my human master? Well, not answering again. And the idea there is not being argumentative but to be deferential, humble, not proud. Not answering again. And again, folks, right, just to throw the disclaimer out, this doesn't, this doesn't mean that, right, as an employee, you don't have an obligation to send your boss an email and go, this project is probably not going to work, maybe we should think about it. That's not what Paul is talking about there. He's just talking about the idea of being defiant, of being difficult for the sake of being difficult. So our actions should be those that are not argumentative, um, uh, not answering again, verse number 10, not purloining, stealing. It's actually the word word purloining actually refers to taking a portion. It is found in Acts chapter 5 and verses 2 and 3 when Ananias and Sapphira kept back a portion. They purloined. But instead, verse number 9, or verse number 10, showing all good fidelity. Being reliable. So that even though you are a slave, you are completely trustworthy. Your master can lay his head on his pillow at night knowing that you are a reliable employee that he can trust that he doesn't fear for his own life he doesn't fear for his stuff and we have by the way folks a couple of old testament examples daniel and joseph are men who exemplify exactly what is being described in titus 2 9 and 10 they were men who were servants of others and some slaves were given very high responsibility in paul's world So that is our second word. First word is slavery. 
And the Bible position is not slavery is an intrinsic evil that needs to go away and so rebel until we have conquered society. But those who are slaves have responsibilities and that brings me to the third word which is theology. Why would God say this? Why would God tell a man to be a good slave? And the answer to that is found in the last part of verse number 10. Verse number 9, exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity. Here's the theology, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Once again, we come across that very important little word, that, that means so that. God is saying, here's what I want you to do. If you find yourself a slave, here's what I want you to do. Take the initiative to submit yourself, determined to be well-pleasing, be reliable, trustworthy. Don't argue, don't steal, do your task. Because I want you to make me look good. Because I need you to make me look good. That's verse 10, folks. I need you to make me look good. That the doctrine of God, that they may adorn, I'm sorry, verse number 10, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. That, that word adorn is the word that gives us the cosmos, the world, the arrangement. Here the idea is to decorate or to embellish. Okay? Now, this is right off the top of my head, and I always stick my foot in my mouth, so that is not my intention. But it it is Christmas tree season. And I'm going to guess that the vast majority of people who go through the effort to put up a Christmas tree, not all, the vast majority, who go through the effort to put up a Christmas tree, have very clear ideas in their mind of how a Christmas tree ought to be arranged. You know what a Christmas tree ought to look like. In other words, you know how a Christmas tree ought to be decorated. It needs to be decorated properly. That's all the point I'm trying. I'm not trying to tell you what that proper decoration is. If you want to know what proper decoration is in our house, you know who to ask. It's not me. Right? My Christmas tree responsibility is help carry it down out of the closet, set it up in the stand, go in the other room. That's my, that's my task. I'm very good at that. I'm very competent at that. Well, let me back up. <clears throat> I try hard. I try hard. But my wife, as do I'm assuming most ladies, has a very clear idea of what that tree should look like when it's done, how it should be decorated how it should be adorned. And God has very clear ideas about how the doctrine, how the, how the words of the Bible and the things that it teaches should be decorated through the lives of God's people, even if they're slaves. Even if they're slaves. Even if they're people with no power, no prestige, no fame, no influence, no chance. They're not world changers. They nevertheless have a responsibility to decorate the Bible. To make God look good. 
So once again, folks, when God talks to us, we discover he's not being selfish, as we would count selfishness. But he doesn't look at us and go, now, what would make you happy? What would, what would make you feel the most fulfilled? He says, where are you? Here's what I need you to do. I need you to make me look good. Wherever you are, I need you to make me look good. Don't do anything to make me look bad. And I always come back to this, folks, because that is exactly the criticism that he levied against David. I gave you all these things, I gave you all this stuff, and then you turn around and you made me look bad. And you are the reason that everybody is talking badly about me. Which, by the way, folks, should be very helpful in a wide array and variety of decisions that we make. On a wide array and variety of subjects is what we're doing, making God look good or bad. That's, that's almost invariably the driving force behind everything he tells us to do or everything he denies us. Again, that sounds, you know, as if, if, if I said it to you folks, if I said to you, if this was my instruction, right, everybody understands, I'm, just, I'm making an illustration, I'm not teaching a doctrine. If I said to you, now Westwood Heights Baptist Church, what I really need you to do is make me, Ken Largent, look good. Don't make me look bad. Make me look good. That would be unbelievably selfish and carnal. But God is not a man. And so when God says, I need you to make me look good, there's nothing sinful or carnal or malicious in that. There's nothing about that that makes him look good at my expense. It is all to my ultimate gain. And that brings me then to my fourth word. And this is a word that Paul doesn't really deal with, but I want to touch upon it, right? We talk about slavery. We talk about the responsibility of those who are slaves. We talk about the theology. Why must they be that way? And I want to close out by talking to us about liberty. Paul does not mention liberty in the text. What Paul does mention is what we would think of as the archenemy of liberty, right? What's the real problem with being a slave? The real problem with being a slave is that your freedom is being encroached. Isn't that the real problem with being an employee? Is it, I mean, isn't part of the rub of being an employee is that somebody else is telling you what to do and somebody else is telling you that you can't have time off and somebody else is telling you when you have to work and And I just I mentioned liberty folks because I want to be careful here that that we do not apply the American definition of liberty to the Christian to the Christian life. In the American vernacular, in the world that we now inhabit, when we say liberty, what we really mean is autonomy. I don't answer to anybody, I don't account to anybody, I'm not responsible for anybody. And I do anything that I want to do. And if you don't like what I do, that's just too bad for you. But I have no obligations to you. And that mentality, folks, increasingly comes into the church for the same reason that worldliness came into the church at Corinth. When worldly people get saved, they're not automatically mature Christians. They're worldly Christians. 
And when people who think that liberty is autonomy get saved or grow up in a culture that says, well, when we say liberty, what we really mean is autonomy, then they're going to walk into the church and go, I don't think anybody should tell me what to do. Or they will say something like, who are, do you have the right to tell me what to do? So let me just ask you quickly to look at three passages in which Jesus talks about liberty as he sees it. First one is in John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verse number 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I send you. Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. So when Jesus talks about freedom, he's talking about this kind of freedom, the freedom of being rightly oriented to him. Because none of us believe, folks, that God gave us autonomy. And In fact, I would just refer you back to the adult Sunday school class this morning in which I argued that that is exactly what Satan held out to Eve is what God was withholding. God has autonomy. He gets to decide what right is and what wrong is. He's withholding that from you. And if you would eat this fruit, then you would have that autonomy and look how good your life would be. That's not freedom, that's slavery. Freedom is being rightly oriented to Christ and under his leadership. Passage number 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians 7 verse 17. But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called everyone, so let him walk. And so ordain I in all churches. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou called being, I'm going to translate the word here, art thou called being a slave? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord being a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise also he that is called being free is Christ's slave. You're bought with a price. Be not ye the servant of men. Brethren, let every man abide wherein he is called, therein abide with God. 
Once again, folks, real freedom is not a matter of social status in this world. It is being rightly oriented to the Lord. If you're a slave, you're free in Christ. And if you're not a slave, you're a servant in Christ. Real freedom is being rightly oriented to Jesus Christ. And then finally, back right about where we were to that little book of Philemon. Sandwiched right in there between Titus and Hebrews. Philemon, verse number 10. I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. While I'm in prison, I, Paul, have led your slave Onesimus to Christ. Which in time past, verse 11, was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. Whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him, that is, mine own bowels whom I would have retained with me, that in my stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind I would do nothing, that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that thou shouldest receive him forever, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, specially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord." If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. So a man who is a slave, who has evidently run away, who has found himself in contact with Paul, who has informed him about Christ, and now Paul has returned this slave to his owner and said, I would have kept him, but I didn't want to keep him without your mind because he belongs to you, and we all belong to the Lord. Freedom, folks, is being rightly related to Christ. He has a yoke for us. He is our master, our king, and our instructor. And to go back to the end of Titus 2, 9, and 10, to those who are the laborers, Even those who labor as a slave. His instruction is, adorn my doctrine with good deeds. Adorn my doctrine with these good deeds. Let's pray tonight. Father, I pray your blessing upon us that as we labor in this world, and again, Father, with the blessings that we enjoy, freedom to, to choose the type of job we wish and where we will work and even what state and city we will work in and to enjoy the labors, the fruit of our labors, may we be the best of employees. May we make you look good in the labor that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.